Linnaean. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 Linnaean Society of London. By trade, I'm an environmental campaigner. Um, always been obviously concerned about um, ecology and the fate of ecosystems and what we're doing to them. So my name is Guy Shrubsall. I'm an author and environmental campaigner, and I wrote the book The Lost Rainforests of Britain, which was published at the end of last year. You know, when I was growing up, I got involved in um, various environmental campaigns. I was, you know, at the kind of age of five, I was introduced to the Save the Rainforest movement by my mum and dad, who were sort of early Friends of the Earth activists and campaigners at the time. Um, so I got to, you know, I was, I was concerned about the fate of the Amazon and tropical rainforests uh, as a kid. What I didn't know when I was growing up that we was that we have temperate rainforests right here in this country. Uh, and we've already done a huge amount to unfortunately destroy them, cut them down, damage them uh, and leave them in a degraded state. Um, and what really brought that home to me was, although I'd read um, you know, a little bit about them before before moving here, it was, but it was moving to Devon where I now live, uh, which really opened my eyes to this um, this habitat and uh, how amazing it can be, how uh, how we do have fragments still clinging on in parts of the western seaboard of Britain, um, and then also from from that kind of it spiralled outwards into being this sort of quest to find out as much as possible about them and visit as many as possible and um, you know try and bang the drum for more people to be uh, come aware of them and do more to protect them. There's two key words you said there in your in your answer that I want to kind of highlight, and that's temperate and tropical. Mm. And I wonder if you could explain what the difference between those two are, because I think people are quite familiar with tropical forests, and that's immediately where our, our minds go. But mm -hmm. they're different, aren't they? Yes. So tropical rainforests are uh, rainy but hot, and temperate rainforests are generally rainy but cool. And so I guess you obviously get the tropical rainforests occurring between the two tropics of Cancer and Capricorn and, uh, you know, occurring in equatorial regions. But, uh, you know, temperate rainforests also exist and they thrive in the temperate uh, regions of the world. So Pacific Northwest of Canada, Japan, uh, and then in, in the Antipodes in New Zealand and Tasmania, and also in uh, parts of Chile and Argentina. But we also have them um, on the Atlantic seaboard because of the Gulf Stream and the amounts of rainfall that we get in Britain and Ireland. There are temperate rainforests here and certainly there were far more of them in the past um, and unfortunately we've cut a lot of them down and, and lost a lot of them so it might seem a sort of weird or perhaps slightly exotic idea that we have rainforests here but we're part of this you know world biome this global biome um, that's scattered across the world very very rare covers i think maybe one percent of the world's surface or uh, considerably less even than tropical rainforests and obviously both are hugely hugely important and hugely threatened but I think it's interesting to think that we have rainforests here that are actually rarer than those uh, in the Amazon and and other parts of the tropics. Absolutely I mean it allows us to start treasuring what we have at home instead of mm. always looking at looking abroad mm. and and for those who are thinking again uh, the idea of tropical forest we're thinking of and the, the cliche might be a coconut tree or something like that. But could you give us a rough idea of what might you find in a temperate forest? Yeah, I and mean, temperate rainforests really are, are, are kind of um, are kind of characterized by the wealth of uh, epiphytic plants that grow in them. And that's plants that grow on other plants. So you don't just have plants growing out of the forest floor, out of the trees coming out of the woodland soils. You have 
a, a whole variety of plants growing on the trees themselves because uh, they don't need to necessarily be latched into the earth to get the moisture content they need. They're getting it from the sheer ambient amounts of moisture in the atmosphere, from the rainfall levels that are such, so great in these parts of the world. And what that means uh, in, in British rainforests um, is uh, particularly um, some of what we, I think, slightly disparagingly call the lower plants, uh, lichens and mosses uh, and liverworts. And I think these have been overlooked um, for far too long. Uh, there's obviously a, a thriving community of, of lichenologists and bryologists who've been fascinated by them for a long time. But I think it's possibly even true to say that even Linnaeus uh, didn't, didn't think too much of lichens. I think he may have called them the poor trash of vegetation. So even, you know, such a figure as Linnaeus, unfortunately, was perhaps a, a little bit... Um, you know, biased when it came to something like lichens <laughs> and, and liverworts and mosses. Thinking about this venture that you went on where you decided to map all these rainforests, I mean, that sounds like uh, uh, Indiana Jones uh, kind of mission. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk us a bit about, talk to us a bit about that in the sense of like, what was the process like? Was it difficult? Uh, much less macho than Indiana Jones. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to be a beta male armed with a GIS map and uh, mapping software and a compass rather than uh, a machete and a bullwhip. Um, no, and, and this was actually, it was very much um, intended to be and, and was a collective enterprise. It turned out that hundreds of people, thousands of people were interested in in doing this. And it was, um, it was sort of in between lockdowns back in 2020 um, that I started getting interested in this and put out uh, you know, tweets and uh, asking people to submit their, make their submissions to this Google map I'd started throwing together. Loads and loads of people got in touch. They sent me photos of woodland, wet woodlands they'd been on walks in, um, you know, photos of lichens and mosses festooning trees. And, you know, what we started to piece together collectively was this map of lots and lots of fragmented um, examples of this habitat or potential examples of this habitat. And obviously that's something that I wanted to then go on and try and kind of reference to, um, you know, kind of check against what uh, other ecologists had found and talking to various botanists, bryologists and other experts on, you know, some of the maps that they produced and and looking at kind of interesting data around, you know, what, what do we know about how rainy it is in different parts of Britain? Obviously, we know it's a rainy place. We always go on about it and obsessed by the weather. But how does that kind of, how does the minute, minute variation in rainfall levels affect the kind of oceanicity, as it's called, of the climate. You know, the kind of the particularly maritime wet climate that allows temperate rainforests to thrive. So there's been a kind of a sort of iterative series of maps that I've ended up producing, working with others, uh, and then using, uh, you know, trying to build upon the data sets that other ecologists have, have, have assembled. And was there any uh, uh, disagreements or, or drama around uh, the definition of what is a rainforest? Oh, absolutely, and and I don't think it's settled. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't, don't pretend uh, that uh, doing this will have will have settled that debate either. There's still lots of discussions going on about what would actually characterise as a temperate rainforest. But I think there are some pointers that are generally agreed on. You know, it's a certain threshold of rainfall um, uh, and uh, and moistness of the climate. Um, you know, and 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 mildness of of the uh, of, of temperature as well. You know, you can't just have um, kind of really greatly oscillating temperatures you need to have a kind of equable climate around the year for these places to remain moist and 
uh, you know, suitable for supporting all these wonderful organisms. Also, often, you know, you can walk into a, a woodland and go, wow, this just, it just feels quite rainforesty. And it's just the sort of sheer overwhelming green verdant nature of the place, even in winter, because every surface is covered in moss and everything's dripping wet. And I think that's that's kind of a good way in for people. Is, does it feel rainforesty? And hopefully then that opens your eyes to all of the, the you know, reading more about the details. Taking the conversation to a slightly uh, a slightly sadder path, talking about the loss and how we've, as you've mentioned, these forests are now fragmented. How did we get to this stage? Hmm. Well, we we you know we hear a lot about tropical uh, deforestation uh, and the, and the kind of how the Amazon is being cut down by sort of slash and burn agriculture. I think we have to we have to recognise that we did something very similar to our own temperate rainforests. And, you know, some of this happened many thousands of years ago. It happened during the Neolithic and the Bronze Age when, you know, the first, some of the first um, you know, farmers, settlers uh, settled on uh, land in the west of Britain and started clearing the wildwood, the, the temperate rainforests of the area to make space for agriculture, to collect firewood and uh, create, you know, create uh, timber for housing and so on. You know, and that's all, yeah, it's all a very long time ago. Um, but it still happened, uh, you know, still humans doing it and still changing the landscape. So I think, and, and the ecosystem. So I think we need to, to recognize that. And sometimes when we sort of talk about um, tropical deforestation and sort of wag our fingers, we need to kind of recognize the slight hypocrisy that we have already, you know, we've kind of benefited from thousands of years of deforestation on which we built our, you know, Western economies. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we need to recognize that. But uh, the more, I think the more troubling uh, damages have been done uh, in, in, in more, more recent memory. The fact is that in the 20th century, we were still cutting down some of our temperate rainforests and bizarrely in the name of planting trees. You know, we, we basically cleared a whole swathes of ancient woodland, including in uh, the Western temperate rainforest zone in order to create plantation forestry. And that's just, just it's, it's so tragic and so bonkers to, to I think, to, to, to hear that nowadays. But it happened. It happened it, it, between the 50s and the 80s. Um, Oliver Rackham, one of our greatest historians of our woodlands, uh, has estimated that we cleared about a third of our ancient woodland in Britain just in those 30 years. And that's just absolutely tragic. And, you know, whether they knew what they were doing at the time properly, you know, we can debate. There were certainly nature reserves being set up that included Atlantic woodlands, uh, in the 50s. So clearly some some people saw the value in them uh, to leave them standing, but others, you know, economists and foresters at the time thought, no, this is something we just need to clear away and plant serried ranks of conifers in their stead in order to create profitable forestry. Um, that's unfortunately not the end of the story either. Um, what's also been uh, really, really destructive and uh, stopped our, our temperate rainforests from regenerating and spreading again has been the sheer stocking density of sheep in this country, the sheer number of sheep that we have grazing uh, because of um, you know modern farming uh, and, and and diets and so on, uh, and that just really really prevents the uh, regeneration of saplings and stops uh, our temperate rainforests and other woodlands from from essentially sort of spreading again, recolonizing land that they've been cleared from. You know, something I really, really enjoyed about your book 
was how you infused culture and people's perspectives and attitudes and how it's so wound up with how we feel about nature and how we're connecting with it. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, especially with the chapter Ghosts in the Landscape, which I thought was really magical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, humans are part of nature, uh, very obviously. And, uh, you know, the ways in which we have obviously done harm to it, we've obviously ultimately done to ourselves as well. You know, we've we've wounded our own relationship with the rest of the natural world through through doing this. Um, You know, to me, it's not about sort of wilderness and nature over here and humans over here and never the twain shall meet it's got to be about how do we heal that broken relationship and if that might sound a little bit hippie then perhaps it is but but I think it's I think it's the only way forward really for us we can't just sort of you know expect nature to survive and if if we're walling it off from everyone and the truth is that particularly in Britain we've obviously lived um, on you know people have lived on these islands for thousands of years and uh, for many of those many of much of that time people were living alongside temperate rainforests and they were writing stories and telling myths and, uh, you know, and singing songs about them. And and I wanted to try and bring that across in the book because I do think there is a kind of deep, uh, you know, kind of deep well of, of inspiration that we've drawn from these wonderful habitats. You know, it's not surprising when we go into them that we feel so alive and inspired that people previously, previous our ancestors, previous generations, societies that lived here before will have done the same so without getting too sort of mystical and hippie and uh, you know about it there is there is a really interesting kind of vein of this in in celtic mythology um the celts who ended up being kind of pushed to the western seaboard of the british isles after the roman conquest particularly and that's sort of still referred to sometimes as as the celtic fringe I'm not sure I like that phrase but that's you know that's what others have said about it and that's obviously where we get our rainforests and so you you look at some of the kind of mythology, uh, the Celtic mythology of a book like the, the Mabinogion, which is one of the earliest collections of Welsh uh, myths and legends and may have been based on oral tradition that does go back to kind of the Celtic period 2000 years ago. Um, you know, you have huge numbers of references in there to oak trees, which dominate the Atlantic woodlands of, of, of the west of, of Britain. And um, talking about, you know, the sort of, uh, the the importance of them to to the people who live there then you know they clearly were hugely important because they infused the the magic that they invoke there's a there's a wizard in welsh mythology called gwydion whose name translates as uh, as woodwise or possibly born of trees and he basically gets his magic from the atlantic temperate rainforests and he uses that magic to kind of be a shapeshifter and to fashion a a woman out of the flowers of the oak and the flowers of the broom and the flowers of the meadow sweet, uh, and you know, and, and, and fights a battle in a place that, if you visit it today, it's a temperate rainforest, and it's literally mentioned in the Mabinogion, which is you know at least a thousand years old when it was written down, and probably probably a lot older. So I think there's this wonderful sense of you know some societies having coexisted in perhaps in a slightly better way with our with our temperate rainforests and being inspired by them. I think I think that that fact uh, should um, should give us some hope as well because actually we can start to look for this, those clues uh, of past human interaction with these with these lost ecosystems in things like old maps, in old place names, uh, you know what uh, the ecologist Ian Rotherham calls ghost woods, and ghost woods is basically where there are where there's a, where there's still a, there, there was a wood but there's no more trees left but there's still evidence for the wood having been there from other things you know 
again, was was it was it called something? Is it called something like you know Birch Tour, for example? There's a place on Dartmoor called Birch Tour. There are no birch trees on Birch Tour. Surely, though, at some point in the dim and distant past, there would have been birch trees on Birch Tour, and hence why it got its name. And um, you know, similarly, you can look for things like uh, indicator species of woodlands that are found outside of woodlands. You know, bluebells occurring in great big, wonderful, um, sh uh, you know, kind of swathes on moorland, uh, or um, bracken is has been proposed by some ecologists as an indicator of, of woodland soils. So I think there's yeah, there's all sorts of things that we can do to kind of become landscape detectives read through our you know listen to the, the, the kind of the myths that our um you know ancestors and predecessors told about these places and seeing that encoded in them kind of references to the ecology of past times and then use that to try and rebuild them and say well actually it might just be a, a huge stand of bracken now but maybe it was a woodland before and maybe we should be allowing that to come back I won't give too much away because I want people to read your book. There was something you wrote in the book. The name Gaelic actually is derived from a word that means forest people. And it really kind of sent a shiver down my spine because if that's my heritage, if that's my identity, and my identity is wrapped up in a landscape that is no more, mm. I think that we know, we know that the you know, people's losses of identity is very problematic for, for groups of people. Mm. Um, so I think we are intertwined in our culture so much with nature and it's so so important so going from there talking a little bit about politics everyone's favorite subject um, the fact that we've just lost Dartmoor this January gone past mm. uh, that allows us to wild camp and allows people to connect to these spaces and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your thoughts about all of this yeah of course yeah when I was looking for material for the book, I, um, I came across a poem by John Clare, um, who was obviously a wonderful uh, naturalist of the late 18th century. Uh, and actually, it was a, I think it's an, one of his unpublished poems, but it was sort of included in an academic essay in which he talks about tree lungwort. Um, so he, back in his day, was, was witnessing tree lungwort growing on trees uh, in in his part of the, the countryside, uh, and um, you know, and marveling at at its appearance. Um, and in the end, there wasn't space to include it, but uh, I wanted to mention it as a, as another instance of of a naturalist um, being inspired by it. But why why I also mentioned John Clare is because, of course, he was a poet who really railed against the enclosure of the countryside. He felt kind of this real psychic wound, I think, of being essentially shut out of the countryside that he knew and loved. And, you know, you mentioned Dartmoor, well, you know, just to kind of bring sort of listeners up to speed on that last month or in January, rather, the, um, you know, the kind of high court ruled uh, in response to a court case brought by a wealthy, wealthy Dartmoor landowner that wild camping uh, is no longer something that can be done as, as of right on Dartmoor. There is no longer a right to wild camp on Dartmoor. Now, since the ruling, there's been a um, kind of deal Kind of botched together by uh, Dartmoor's landowners in the National Park Authority to give people permissive access to wild camp on Dartmoor. But that's really not the same thing. If we only had permission to vote, but not a right to vote, I think a lot more people would be up in arms. Um, you know, and sim similarly with, with this, though, I think, you know, we, we did actually see, and, and I think this get, has given me cause for optimism, which was a, a huge backlash against that ruling. And, and 
I was involved in in helping organise um, the subsequent protest, along with with lots of other people who live in and around Dartmoor. And we had three and a half thousand people turn up in a tiny, tiny Dartmoor village, very remote. Um, managed to get lots of coaches to bring people, and people walked miles and and so on. And I really think it was a you know a testament to the outpouring of yeah concern and outrage about. Um, you know the kind of the extinguishing of this of this of this right of this ancient freedom, um, but also I think it did speak to perhaps how people how some people have reconnected to nature in the last few years. You know we talk about the kind of impact, obviously of 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 the pandemic on um, you know everyone's lives in, in in you know many horrendous ways. I guess there was also an aspect to it of people connecting to nature again on their daily walks that they're allowed to go on, you know, confined to the local area, starting to see things that they perhaps hadn't seen before or had overlooked. You know, and I remember being inspired by the example of um, the rebel botanists and uh, who started just chalking the names of, you know, weeds, common common plants onto pavements uh, where they occurred, just to kind of give people a sense of, you know, oh, well, this isn't just a weed, this is, this is a plant, it's, you know, part of your local environment. There's something to learn here and there's something to kind of connect with. But I think it's that sense of, you know, you need to have a kind of a way in to to understanding what's going on. I, I didn't know the names of, you know, common wildflowers before a few years ago when I started to try and make a bit more of a concerted effort to learn some. Because then I think you start to generate a, a great, greater care and greater understanding. and greater desire to protect a place as well. You know, we kind of hear a lot about why the public should be kept out of the countryside because they're going to make a mess of it. And I kind of think the opposite is true. I think you need to let the public in because we are ultimately, you know, nature's whistleblowers. We could see, we can see what's going on in the countryside. We can see then when a tree is being cut down illegally or, a, you know, wildflower meadow is being ploughed up and we can, we can raise a noise about it. And I think we need to we need to start to embrace this fact that all people can be stewards, not just landowners, of the countryside. What your hopes are um, moving forward um, with this book? You know, what I wanted to do was to try and uh, re-enchant people, and I think I've, I've had some wonderful stories uh, of of you know members of the public and farmers who got in touch who said, oh, I. You know, I found a, I read your book and I found, went out into my, you know, fields and then down to the little hazel grove that's growing at the bottom of my farm. And I found hazel gloves fungus growing there. And to me, that just made my special place uh, even more special to me. And that was, you know, that was a wonderful kind of story and anecdote that was told by by one sheep farmer in, in West Devon. That's the sort of impact that I hope to have with this book. And But I do hope there is also... A, a political impact too, because I think that we can, there's only so much we can do as individuals. We obviously have to act collectively and ultimately we have to act politically. And, you know, I think um, the government in Westminster, the UK government has started to show more interest in this habitat before, uh, you know, before we sort of really started campaigning on this uh, a couple of years ago, myself and some colleagues, there, there wasn't really any mention of rainforest, uh, temperate rainforest in parliament. Uh, and now, uh, just at the start of this year, not only has it been discussed in Parliament, but there is, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a first time that a, a, an official government document has actually mentioned temperate rainforests and 
the government's desire to do more to protect and restore them. But clearly, there's a long, long way to go. Uh, and, you know, politicians come and go. Uh, they get reshuffled with increasing frequency, it seems. Uh, and we all need to keep the pressure on, really. Um, you know, th there are there are representatives. And if we want to bring back Britain's rainforests, then we need to make damn sure that the government are doing their part, too. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of London. 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 London.